Yeah, as Pastor Jason mentioned, uh, we're really excited about the weather today and tomorrow. It's, it's exciting, isn't it? It's, it's really exciting. Yesterday was a little bit of a tease, because when you looked outside, it was like, oh, spring is here. And then you stepped outside, it was like, nope, <laughs> still winter. And uh, before I had stepped outside, I chose my outfit for the day, and I had just put on some gym pants, some warm-up pants. You know warm-up pants that have buttons down the side, and so they don't really fully protect you from the cold or the wind. And we, my family and I, we drove out to Costco's because Costco's is, you know, that's where the glory of God is. And so we drove out there, and uh, I'm, I'm out of gas, and so we pull in to get gas, and I get out to pump gas, and the wind is just whipping through my pants, and my legs are freezing, and I am, like, just so miserable. And I get back in the car, and I said to my family, I said, in a world where everything's getting faster, pumping gas has never gotten faster. <laughs> It, it may be getting slower. Like, why does it? Why haven't? Why hasn't somebody created the technology to pump gas faster? It seems like everything else is speeding up. Think about you know, how we get our news now versus how we used to get our news. When I was a teenager, I delivered the newspaper, the Herald Journal, the afternoon paper to people's homes. And back then, there was a morning paper and an afternoon paper, which seems like overkill. Except that was the only way you would get news back then either the morning paper, the afternoon paper, or the 6 p.m. news. That was it. Now we have news at our fingertips all day long. Think about how we communicate with each other. We had to write out our thoughts and fold them up and put them in an envelope and address them and put a stamp on them, and then it would take days or weeks depending on where you were sending it. Now it's just with a couple pushes of buttons, uh, we can have messages to each other immediately. I was thinking about the way that we consume entertainment. It blows my daughter's minds. I have three girls, 11, 9, and 6. It blows their minds to think that there was a time where you had to wait till Saturday morning to watch cartoons. You had one window a week to watch cartoons, and it was Saturday mornings. Now, my daughter is on their little devices. They can choose and watch just about anything they want at any time. And then the other thing I was thinking about is just the way we shop. We used to have to drive to places and walk around and look around and find all the deals and all the steals and now you just jump on Amazon and if that building gets built in the village of Liverpool, those drones are going to be dropping stuff at our houses within hours and I'm all for it. But here's the thing I've been wondering about it. In a world that is speeding up, is it doing anything to our souls? Is it affecting us in any sort of way that we should be concerned about? There was an article I read in the Boston Globe uh, a computer science professor at UMass Amherst, he did a study on the viewing habits of 6.7 million internet users. And the whole point of his research was to answer this question, how quickly will people stop watching a video if it doesn't start? And he found that it's two seconds. Within two seconds, people start abandoning the video that they clicked on. Within five seconds, 25% of the people aren't watching anymore. And within 10 seconds, which let's be honest, that's an eternity on the internet, but within 10 seconds, 50% of the people were like, nah, I'm going somewhere else. And the title of this article was, Instant Gratification is Making Us Perpetually Impatient. Instant gratification. We live in a world where everything's at our fingertips and we can get everything immediately. But what it's actually doing is, is it's making us the most impatient society that's ever existed. And we're going to look at a passage in James this morning. We've been spending the last 10 weeks in the book of James, and we're near the end. We've got one more sermon from James next Sunday. But we're in James chapter 5. I'm going to read to you verses 7 through 11. And James has some things to say about patience. He says this, verse 7. 
Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then he gives this example. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, like the farmer, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged, because behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So what we're going to do together this morning from this text is we're going to learn three things about patience. Three things. We're going to learn what patience looks like. We're going to learn uh, why patience runs out, although most of us know. And uh, we're going to talk about how patience ultimately can win out, okay? What it looks like, why it runs out, how it wins out. What does patience look like? And James gives us a clue with his metaphor, with his illustration. He talks about the farmer. One thing that patience looks like is trusting the process, Trusting the process. Now, I'm not a farmer. I've never worked a day in my life on a farm. I have, my wife teases me. I have very soft hands. I, I've not been built for manual labor. So I don't, I don't know about farming, but I, I, I do know this. I know that after a farmer does his or her work, the results are not immediate, right? If you plant something in a garden, my mom has a garden. She plants things in the garden. She doesn't stand over it, staring at it right after she plants a seed going, come on. Let's go. Get with it. And James uses this metaphor that the farmer does his work, but the farmer has no choice but to trust the process. Farmers recognize they're not in control. The rains will come, but they don't know when. The best farmer in the world can't control the rain when the rain comes. And here's the thing about farming. All the work that's happening, all the growth that's happening for so long, it's out of sight. It's beneath the surface. It's happening, but you can't see it. And it depends on things outside of your control, like the weather and like the rain. And so James uses this illustration to remind us that we can't control all the things that are happening in our lives. How many of you have learned that? You can't control all the things that are happening in your life. You can't control the timing of things. Things never are going to happen as fast as you probably want them to happen. But there's a way to trust the process. You know, what about us? Where is your heart at when life doesn't move as quickly as you would like it to move? The opportunities you're hoping for don't come as fast. The relationship you've been waiting for isn't coming along. The, 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 the change in somebody else's life that you've been praying for, you're not seeing. How, do we, how, do we be, how can we be patient? And it starts with trusting that just because we can't see what's happening doesn't mean nothing is happening. God is at work. Now, the farmer doesn't do, understand that the farmer does, it's not that the farmer does nothing, that would be fatalism. The farmer does his part but he faithfully prepares and does the work, but then he trusts that the greater work is not his. In other words, waiting for the Christian uh, is not about being passive, it's about being patient. It's not about sitting back and doing nothing, it's about in all of our doing having hearts that are patient. But the truth is, is that you and I, in this society today, we don't want to wait. We don't want a process, we want a product. We want a result. And I was thinking about this this week, I thought of this question, is it possible, or what if, the things in life that matter the most never come to us quickly. Never. Anything you can get quickly ultimately is not the most important thing in life. 
I thought of some examples. How about great relationships? Do great relationships happen quickly? Does it happen like it looks like in the rom-coms and the movies where you meet someone, you fall in love, it's a great, you know, those of you who've been married, you know, it takes time and lots of time. Those of you that have good relationships with friends, that takes time. You don't immediately have a great relationship, but is it worth having? Is a great relationship, is a great friendship worth having? Absolutely. It takes time. Another example is personal growth. If we're going to grow in any way that really means something and that really lasts, character growth, personal growth, even physically growing healthier, those things take time. And it would be nice, believe me, I've searched every avenue, a quick way to get healthy and lose weight and be fit and have a six-pack for the beach this summer. I've, I've looked at all the quick options. None of them work. you got to do the work. you got to trust the process, right? So the things in life that matter most, they don't come to us quickly. And so it comes down to us learning to trust in God's plan and his timing. And the number one thing that's going to keep you and me from trusting in God's plan and trusting the process is our own pride. Us thinking, I know best. Listen, we all think we know best for our own lives. Every single one of them is like, I know what's best for me. But you can look back through your life and many times you can identify, I actually didn't know what was best for me. I thought I knew what was best for me, but I didn't know. Trusting in God's plan. I read this quote earlier this week on Twitter from a Christian author named Bob Goff. I love this. I could relate to this, and maybe you can too. He's an, old, he's an older gentleman, and he said, most of the things in life I thought I had figured out, it turns out I wasn't even close. Most of the things in life I thought I knew about, I thought I figured out, turns out I wasn't even close. And then he said this. He said, be humble. You'll find out why later. I love that. Be humble. You'll find out why later. A lot of times we can't see. We don't know. We have limited perspective. And so we trust the process. The other thing that patience looks like is enduring the pain. James is writing this letter to Jewish believers thousands of years ago who are enduring a lot of pain. They're being mistreated. They're being taken advantage of. Their bosses are not paying them for their work. The financial systems of the world at that time are structured in such a way to oppress them and keep them down. And they're suffering, and James is very sensitive to their suffering. He recognizes, and you all recognize this, right, that in life, pain is real. Every single one of us goes through pain. We endure pain, physical pain, social pain, relational pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain, mental pain. We can all understand pain. Pain is real. And to get through pain, there's a process, and we learn to endure the pain as we go through it. Some, some of our church family members recently have had surgery and knee replacement and rotator cuff, and we have others who are having surgery. If you're ever having surgery, let us know. We want to pray for you, and we'll provide meals for you as well. But when you go through the recovery from a surgery, there's no shortcut. you got to do the work. you got to go to therapy. you got to stretch. you got to work hard. you got to do those things. you got to endure the pain. And James here isn't calling his beloved brothers and sisters, and this is the language he uses, In fact, this is the most gentle and pastoral James is in his entire letter. He's very harsh and direct in most places. But in this letter, he uses very gentle pastoral language. Why? Because he's talking about pain. And he knows in order to help people in pain, you have to be empathetic and sympathetic to them. He's calling them to endure well in their pain. In John chapter 11, there's a story about Jesus, a very memorable story. One of Jesus' closest friends' name is Lazarus. And Lazarus is very sick. And he's on his deathbed. And Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, send word to Jesus. They say, your friend Lazarus is sick. Jesus, come. You're the healer. 
We know that if you lay your hands on him, if you pray, if you just speak the word, we know you can heal him. But Jesus doesn't go. Jesus stays. And then word comes to Jesus, Lazarus died. And then Jesus says, all right, now let's go. And the disciples are like, what's the, disciples are like, what's the point now, Jesus? He's already dead. You waited too long. Jesus gets there, and Lazarus has been dead for four days. And the sisters hear that Jesus is there, and they run out to him one after the other. And the first one that gets to Jesus is Martha. And Martha says to Jesus, oh, if you had only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus enters into a discourse, a dialogue with her for about five verses. Back and forth, he's talking to her. And he essentially says to her, Martha, if you believe, you're going to see something incredible. I am the resurrection and the life. And all who believe in me will know the life that is in me. And he's giving her this truth to hold on to. And then he keeps walking closer to the tomb, and Mary comes to him. And Mary comes to him and basically says the same thing to him. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But this time, Jesus is so emotional, he can't barely talk. He doesn't make a case for himself. All he can get out of his mouth is, where have they laid him? Where is Lazarus? And then John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse in all the scripture, simply says, Jesus wept. And I read that story, which has a great ending, by the way. Finish it yourself. When I read that story, I think of two things. Number one, Jesus comes to us in our pain with truth. But also, number two, Jesus comes to us in our pain with tears. When we're in pain, Jesus comes to us with truth and with tears. And you know what? You and I need both of those things. One, with the other, one without the other won't cut it. Truth without tears, you don't think that person cares or understands. But tears without truth, and they're just another person, there's just another weepy person that feels bad for you. But Jesus walks into our pain with truth and with tears. And if we hold that truth in our hearts, and if we believe that to be true, then we're going to be able to endure pain and be patient even in the midst of pain. Now listen, isn't it, let's be honest, truth and tears, truth and tears, as helpful as they are, they don't eliminate pain, do they? Jesus came with truth and he came with tears. And Lazarus was still dead after both of those things happened. It doesn't eliminate those things, but it helps us to know that we don't walk alone through our pain and that we don't walk through our pain without under, someone who understands. Now, there are some things that pain does for us, and let me be quick here. Number one, pain can actually grow us. Do you know that? Pain can grow. If you look back, actually, in your life, the times that you've grown the most was when you suffered and when you struggled. We do not grow much when life is easy. We just don't. We just get lazy. It's just our nature. But in the struggle, we can grow. We don't always grow because actually it can destroy us. But in the struggle and in the pain, if we hold on to the truth of Jesus, we can grow. And I was reading this one quote by an author who said that if you eliminated suffering from the world, the world would be a dreadful place to be. Because he said suffering is the only thing or the main thing that actually corrects our tendency as human beings to live for ourselves. And think everything is about us and live for my happiness and my glory. And so this author makes the argument that the worst thing that could happen is to completely remove suffering from the world because human beings would be intolerable. We'd be impossible to live with. I mean, I know, don't raise your hands, but some of you feel like you live with people who are hard to live with right now. Now imagine if they have, have, don't have any humility, they haven't learned anything through suffering, through pain, through struggle, through sorrow. Without pain, we don't grow. Secondly, pain teaches us to trust. I learned this 
In a season of my life in 2017, eight months apart, I buried my dad, I buried my brother. And in that season, when people would ask me, how are you doing, which is a fine question to ask, I would usually say the same thing to them. I would say, we're doing okay. And then I would say this, we're learning to trust God in new ways. We're learning to trust God in new ways. Now, don't get me wrong. I would never have chosen that season for my family. I, don't want anything, I, I never want anything to do with that season. But in the midst of that season, I learned to trust God more. I learned to trust him in ways I would not have otherwise learned to trust him. And good friends of mine just went through a terrible loss in their life. And, my, and the husband was texting me this week about it. And he texted me this. He said, I realize, he's thinking about his loss. He was processing it. And he said, I realize that God owes us nothing. I'm just trying to rest in who he is. I have to believe that in the kingdom of God, nothing is wasted. And I was like, man, that is... To have that truth grip your heart in the midst of unthinkable loss and sorrow, where do you find that? Where do you get that? And it's found in Christ. It's found in seeing his sorrow and his suffering and knowing that nothing was wasted that he did and nothing is wasted that he is currently doing. In the kingdom of God, nothing is wasted. And here's what I've learned about suffering and sorrow and pain and times where you have to endure and be patient. It doesn't create your theology. It reveals your theology. It doesn't shape. A lot of people say, I lost my faith in Christ because I went through suffering. It, usually suffering doesn't do that. Usually what suffering does is it actually exposes what you've already believed all along, but now it comes to the surface in the midst of pain. And so some people have this theological framework that thinks God owes me things because I've been a good person. And if that's your theological framework, which is essentially, it's called moralism, I've lived good, so God should be good to me, you'll never get through suffering with your faith intact. You just won't survive it. But if we believe what my friend said, God owes me nothing. He owes me nothing. But in Jesus, he gave me everything. And so if he asks anything of me, it doesn't mean I'm going to enjoy it. It doesn't mean I'm going to embrace it. It means I'm going to endure it. And that's what patience looks like, enduring pain. Remaining patient in our pain is the only thing that allows us to see God's bigger plan and purpose. So that's what patience looks like. Secondly, why does patience run out? Moms and dads, we know why, because kids are annoying, right? No. Uh, why do patience run out? Why does patience run out? Patience runs out because... We focus on our problems so much. We get, James used the example of the prophets. He said, look at the prophets. What's amazing about the prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, those guys, is that they saw, as well as anybody, all the problems in Israel and in Judah back then, and they talked a lot about it, but they never lost sight of the fact that God was bigger than their problems. Yes, big problems, but bigger God. And so many times in our lives when we have problems, I know many of you have real problems in your life right now, real struggles in your families with your health, with your finances. I understand that's all in this room right now. But when we take that, when we take that problem and we keep it in front of our face the whole time, and it's all we think about and it's all we look at, it begins to get bigger than it is. It begins to loom larger. And even though your hand from here won't block your ability to see people in front of you, your hand here will. And the way in which we feel fill our attention and our focus and our hearts with our problems. We focus on our problems and we forget the promises of God in our life. It has the power to steal our patience from us. 
And also, when you're thinking about your problems, think about the stories that you attach to your problems. Because you always have your problems, but then you also have the reasons why you have the problems you have and what those problems mean for you. And those are the stories that you've created, the stories that you're telling. And I always work with my girls, my daughters, uh, my, my, on, on knowing the difference. This is a good parenting tool. Knowing the difference between facts and story. And one of my daughters might say to me, I don't think any of those girls on my team, I don't think they like me. And I'm like, who are they? Point me in the right direction. Point me in the right <laughs> What I'll say is, why do you think that? Give me the, f- what did you see, right? What's observable? They don't, they don't really talk to me. I say, okay, so that's, that's what you saw. That's your fact. And that's true. They don't talk to you. Let's, let's come up with five or six different narratives. Why aren't they talking to you? Because most of us come up with one narrative and then we believe it wholeheartedly. So most children in that case would go, it's because they don't like me and there's something wrong with me. Well, there's other narratives, too. Maybe they're really shy. Or maybe they're all best buddies and they don't know how to break out of their own friendship circle. Or maybe this, that. There are other narratives, right? And so when we talk with our children, but, but we're not much better than kids because we do the same thing. My boss didn't invite me into that meeting. You create a narrative. You never question your own narrative. You believe it. And it becomes the source of your impatience. And so James is calling us to not focus so much on our problems, but trust in what God is doing. And then in the midst of all this, James does something that really kind of ups the ante. He says, and by the way, don't grumble against each other. And he's talking to Christians, to believers. He's not talking to the world, the people who don't believe. He's talking to people who believe. And he's saying, you're grumbling against each other. You're speaking, you're gossip. The way you talk about each other, it's actually reflective of a lack of patience towards one another. One of the areas of our life where we lack the most patience is, how, patience is how we treat other people. People who are different than us, people who don't think like we do, people who, who just uh, bother us. And so James is saying, be careful. And actually, James here says, don't, judge, don't grumble against each other because the judge is watching. God notices the way we talk about each other, and it reflects our hearts. And then right in the middle of it, he says my favorite phrase, the phrase that stuck with me the most in this text, these three words, Establish your hearts. Because all of our impatience flows out of our hearts, what we really love and treasure most. So we focus on the problems, but we, secondly, here's why patience runs out, we forget the promise. Establish your hearts, why? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. You know, if, you're, if you go out to a restaurant and you're super excited to go eat, if you're anything like me, You've already studied the menu online multiple times. You've looked up every word on the menu you don't recognize. You've got plan A and plan B and plan, you know, I'm going to get this unless they order that. Then I'm going to get this so then I can try theirs and have mine. And I'm going to, right, so like that's me. Like I, gotta, I don't walk into restaurants haphazard. I got a plan. I know what I'm doing. And you, you, so you're thinking about, you're driving to the restaurant and your mind's already there. You're already picturing the food. And then you walk in and you, sit down and you start smelling the food and now you're salivating. And the, the, imp, the, the meal's not even in front of you and it's been, infa- it's been affecting you all day. Just me? Just me? It's been affecting you all day. And that's what this means. When, when, when James says that the coming of the Lord is at hand, those two words, at hand, in the Greek, what they mean is not so much that Jesus is coming soon, although they always believe that, and we still can believe that, what it means is that the coming of the Lord should be affecting you already. The truth, 
the certainty that Jesus is going to return and wipe out all of our problems and make everything right and all the things that make you impatient will end, the fact that that truth is certain, it should be, it's at hand, it should be impacting the way you live your life right now. In a sense, you should be salivating for the coming of the Lord. And that will help you establish your heart and be patient. The promise sustains us because what the promises that God makes is the question is not if, the question is simply when. Not will God keep his word, but when will he keep his word? And the other story that James references in the Old Testament, and then we'll finish or we'll get to the last point, is a man named Job. And although Job is located in the middle of the Old Testament, chronologically, Job's actually the, probably the earliest book we have. It happens somewhere in the middle of Genesis. Job was probably a contemporary maybe of like Abraham and those guys. And Job loses everything basically in one day. His family, um, his possessions, his cattle, his livestock, his house, and his health. And all that he has left is his life and a wife who nags him. (laughs) Job is probably thinking, really, you had to stop there? You could have gone one more, right? So all he's got left is his, 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 his body, which is infested, his skin covered in sores, and his wife who's basically saying to him, why don't you just curse God and die? Uh, what's the, why are you staying faithful to God at this point? Look at what he's done to you. In the midst of Job's suffering, and, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a long story with lots of, um, lots of challenges in interpreting it, but one of the clearest verses is in Job 19.25 where Job says this, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the end of time, he's going to stand on the earth. Whatever you're currently having to endure, whether it's a difficult relationship, whether it's a difficult work environment, uh, whether it's dreams that seem like they're on hold, remind yourself of that promise. I know my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he's going to stand on the earth. In other words, in the end of time, if we hold on the promise, he's going to make all things right. And we're going to be able to rest in that. Last thing this morning is this. How does patience win out? In the last verse of our text, James says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, for the Lord is, two things, compassionate and merciful. It means he cares and he can do something about it. And in that verse, you get the two tensions that we have to learn to hold together if we're going to be patient in life. Here's the two things we have to hold in tension. Number one, God has plans and purposes. Number two, those plans and purposes are good. They're hard to hold together at times, aren't they? I was listening to a podcast last week called Without Fail. They interview people who have been successful in different areas of their lives, and they interview an author named John Green. I don't know if you've heard of John Green. He wrote a young adult novel called um, The Fault in Their Stars. Is that what it's called? The Fault, yeah, The Fault in Our Stars, which became this New York Times bestseller about two young adults who both have cancer, who find each other, who love each other. And then, you know, I'll let you read the rest or, or watch the rest because it became a massively popular movie. And uh, they were interviewing him about his upbringing. And he grew up in Episcopalian in church. In fact, he wanted to be a pastor. That was his whole goal, to be a pastor. But then as a, as a 19-year-old, I think, he got a job or he did an internship at a children's hospital where he lived. And he began to see children who were suffering. And there was one child in particular who was three or four years old who came in covered mostly in burns just suffering so badly. And it so bothered him that he lost his faith in that moment. He looked at that kid and he said, 
There's no way there's a God who is both powerful and loving, who could stop this from happening, but didn't. That's called the problem of theodicy, suffering and evil in a world where there's a God. And it's a real problem. And I don't, I don't have the time today to do it justice. So if this is a problem you struggle with, I'd be glad to have a private conversation with you and give you some resources. But this is a real struggle. How can God both be all-powerful and all-loving if there's evil and sin and sorrow and struggle in the world? And it was too much for John Green. He gave up his faith and he never returned. And in the interview, John Green said, I I've always wanted to know what happened to this kid, but I kind of didn't want to know because I just assumed he died. But he had a very memorable name. He said, years later, I Googled this kid, and he's great. He's doing great. He's got a great life. And he, he didn't go into detail, but he said, this kid is doing amazing. And the interviewer, who wasn't a Christian, or isn't a Christian, I should say, he said, hold on. Did that make you rethink abandoning your faith now that you've seen the end of the story for this kid's life? And John Greed said, no, it actually, I never thought of that before. But now maybe I should think about it some more. I don't mean to make light of his journey. He's a real person who has a real journey. But this is what I thought after listening to the interview. In a moment of impatience, because of the terrible pain he saw, and that's terrible pain, a child suffering, I get it. In a moment of impatience, he walked away from the only hope any of us really have. And I think James is saying to people who are suffering, if you'll be patient, if you'll trust the process, and if you'll endure, you'll see God's plan. We may not even see it on this side of eternity. The prophets said many things that they died before they came true. There may be things that we don't see God work out while we're here. But we can trust his plan. We can trust that he is at work. And when we look at the cross, we can see people would look at the cross, Jesus dying on the cross, hanging there naked, whipped, beaten, hanging on the cross, and people could say, what good could that be? What good could come out of that? How can I believe in a God where the world where a man who never sinned dies on a cross for crimes he didn't commit? I'm supposed to believe in a God who lets that happen? But it was that very event that gives us hope and salvation and forgiveness of sins and forgiveness of all the times we've not been patient. This week while I've been prepping this message, the Holy Spirit has been especially annoying and pointing out to me every time I've been impatient with my children or impatient in traffic or at the Starbucks drive-thru. And the Holy Spirit saying, you do know what you're preaching on this Sunday, right? <laughs> and I'm like, mind your business, mind your own business. When we look at the cross, we see the two tensions, the two truths held in tension perfectly, the purposes of God and the goodness of God. This is what Jesus, this is what God did. He crushed his own son. He allowed his son to be crushed so that you and I don't have to be, so that we can have hope in every situation. In 2 Peter 3, 8, 9, I'll finish by reading these verses and we'll pray. Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, said this. He said, do not overlook the fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Peter's saying, God's timeline is not our timeline. Don't overlook that fact. But then he says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. He's not slow. He, he, may, he may seem slow to you and me, but Peter's saying he's not slow. He's going to be right on time. When he does what he does, it's going to be right on time. Not what we would choose, but if we knew what he knows, then we would choose what he chooses. 
And then he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to some count slowness, but listen to this phrase, but he is patient toward you. When's the last time you've let that truth wash over your heart? God is patient with me. He's patient with me because he doesn't want any to perish, but he wants all to repent and place their faith and hope and trust in him. And if at the very center of our heart is this truth, God, you've been so kind to me. You've been so patient with me. Here's what it does. It gives us the power and the motivation to be patient with others because we've received patience that we don't deserve. So we give patience to others. We trust the process. We endure the pain. We know that he's working even when we don't see what he's doing. He's working even when we don't feel what he's doing. He's working. He never stops working so we can be a patient people. Let's pray together this morning.